Good. Haggai chapter 2 tonight. Haggai chapter 2. Enjoyed the song tonight. Have you ever been challenged to stand strong? Maybe God has spoke to your heart under the preaching of, of God's Word and there's an area of obedience that He challenges you in and He gives you a vision. This is what I want you to do. And you have in your mind, this is how things are going to, to work out. If I obey God, if I do what He tells me to do, uh, this is what's going to happen. And then once you get into the thick of it and you get the middle of it, you look around and you don't exactly see the results that you thought you were going to see. It didn't quite work out as beautiful or as rosy as you thought it was going to. Have you ever struggled with a lack of results and the discouragement that comes with those lack of results? Perhaps maybe you've been challenged to, to go out and be a part of outreach, only to have you know, entire weeks go by when no one's home, no one is even, and if they are, no one's willing to even talk to you. What was the point of that? What was that all about? Lack of results. Maybe you've been challenged to you know, pour your life into someone and you get excited about doing a Bible study with someone, a salvation study, and, and presenting the truth of the gospel only for them to get busy with life and walk away. Lack of results. Maybe you've been challenged by the Lord to serve in a particular area here in, in the church to use your, your time, your talents, your gifts for the Lord, and you serve in those areas only to feel like you're overlooked and taken for granted. No real results to show for it. You've been challenged to make a spiritual investment. Perhaps there's some of you as parents challenged to make that spiritual investment in your kids only to see them make wrong choices, act disinterested and uncaring. You have an image in your mind. If I obey God, this is what's going to happen as a result. And then when that doesn't happen, discouragement sets in. Have you ever been discouraged tonight? You have these, what am I doing thoughts. Maybe that's just me. I've had those before. You get in the middle of it and the question comes in your mind, what am I doing? I mean, this is what I thought was going to happen and this is not exactly happening that way. What am I doing here? What am I accomplishing here? What are the results that I thought I was going to see? Where are they? And discouragement sets in. Tonight I want to take a few minutes to consider your discouragement. Consider your discouragement because this is exactly what God does now to his people. He challenges them to consider their discouragement. And I want to, be, I want to start reading there in Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 1. We'll read those first uh, nine verses there, chapter 2. Haggai 2 and verse 1 says, In the seventh month, 
In the one and twentieth day of the month came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, So my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in the place, and in this place, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Heavenly Father, tonight I know, I know that your word is powerful. I know that what is contained in this chapter, in these verses, I know that's what's here is powerful enough to take us from a place of being dispirited and discouraged, bringing us through that to a place of victory, to a place of being exactly where you want us to be. I know you've provided answers here for us. But Lord, I need your help here tonight to be able to present it in a way that is consistent and respectful with the power that's here. And Lord, I ask for your help here tonight. We pray that you'd help all of us to listen to what you have to say, to take your remedy and apply it to our own lives. Pray that you challenge us and use us here uh, tonight for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John, just go ahead and advance that. I don't, for whatever reason, my clicker's not working. So God comes to his people and he challenges them to consider their discouragement. This is the third message from the prophet Haggai for the people. The first message is found in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The message was, consider your ways. Make my house a priority. Get back to building a temple of worship for me in my city, the city of Jerusalem. Of course, that temple had been destroyed because of the sin of the people. They had been in captivity, but God stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, and, and God laid on his heart the, the, the need and the desire to build a house of God. And so he made it possible, and a remnant of the people returned with Zerubbabel to fulfill this very task. And they had started out the task, but had gotten discouraged, and there were, there were some setbacks that they faced, and so the work was not being accomplished. The work lay undone for 16 years until God moves on the heart of Haggai and also the prophet Zechariah, and he challenges the people, consider your priorities. Your priorities are you and not me. 
get that straightened out and build my house. And we saw the, the wonderful good news that that's exactly what the people did. And they followed that. And that brought, brings about the second message, which is found in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It was the message of encouragement from God. Consider your obedience. God was saying, I see what you're doing. I see your obedience. I'm pleased by it. And so therefore, I'm with you. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. We're in this together. I see what you're doing and I'm pleased by what you're doing. And that brings us to the third message here in chapter number two. And that is simply consider your discouragement. God's pointing out the fact that the presence of discouragement. This is from God himself. God is pointing this out. God is drawing this comparison. It's not as though the people are sitting around complaining about this, but see, God sees the heart. He, he, he looks into the heart of man. He looks, he looked into the heart of his people and he said, I know there's some discouragement there. So let's deal with that discouragement. You'll notice he points out in verse number one, the timing of that discouragement. It happened in the seventh month in the one and 20th day of the month. And that's significant because if you put the pieces together, Haggai's first message was given in the first day of the sixth month. And then that second message was delivered in the 24th day of the sixth month, so about three weeks later. And then now this message is being given in the 21st day of the seventh month. So this is about one month's worth of time between when the work was started and now the message from God. One month. Three weeks, 21 days, a little bit more than 21 days, but you get the idea. Just a few days. Discouragement can happen quick. It comes out of nowhere when we sort of least expect it. I mean, we're still in the the beginning days of this. This is going to take a long time. This is a, a huge monumental task. And as soon as they start, there's the struggle with discernment. The timing of it, it can happen fast. In verse 2, we see the spread of it. God delivers his message. Now, the the discouragement specifically, we're going to see this in a second, is happening with a a, a small group of people within the the, the nation as a whole. But you notice that God's message in verse 2 is to Zerubbabel. It's to Joshua. It's to the residue of the people. It's the whole group. Because of this fact that no matter how small discouragement can start, it spreads very quickly. And it's not just contained to one group of people or or one class of people. This was everyone. From the civil leader, which was Zerubbabel, to the religious leader, which was Joshua, to all of the residue of the people. You get let a little discouragement in there. You you get a little talking happening behind the scenes. And before you know it, it spreads to everyone. And so God says, I've got a message for everybody. Let's gather everybody together. And this is a message for everyone. I need everyone to hear this. Because discouragement can spread very quickly. And then we get to verse number three, which is the questions from God. And this is the confrontation of discouragement. And I just thought this was very unique. It's God who points this out. It's God who says, okay, we need to have a talk. It's God who says, I know what's going on in your heart. Let's lay it out. 
Let's discuss it. The truth is that God sees our discouragement. Now, this is both a comforting thought and also a challenging thought. The comfort is that when no one else sees my discouragement, when when no one else knows about what's going on in, in my heart, the struggles that I'm going through, when no one else sees it, God sees it. When no one else knows about my discouragement, God knows about my discouragement. When it, when it seems like it feels like no one else cares about what's going on in my heart, God sees what's going on, and He cares. There's a comfort in this, but there's also a challenge in this. Because it's God who exposes this discouragement. It's God who flips the, the flashlight on and shines it on the discouragement. It's God is the one who brings it to the light of day. And, so, and, and He's the one who says, this is what's going on. I know this is what's going on. I'm exposing what's going on because we need to deal with what's going on. And often this is required in order for us to really overcome our despondency and our discouragement is to get it out into the light of day. To allow God to shine the light of his truth upon the feelings of our heart. The feelings are real. It's not as if they're they're, they're fake. They're, They're real. But they need to be exposed to the truth of God's word, the truth of what God has to say. And oftentimes we're tempted to be ashamed of our discouragement, to to hide our discouragement, to pretend that we don't struggle with those things, to deny that discouragement. But God wants the exact opposite. He says, we're going to bring it out into the light of day. Here are these small group of men who were struggling with this discouragement. Perhaps they were thinking they were doing it privately. Perhaps they weren't even vocalizing it. And now God says, we're all going to get together We're all going to make this a matter of conversation and discussion. We're going to shine the light of truth on what's going on with the feelings that are in our heart. And boy, do we need to do that with the the feelings. And not just the feeling of discouragement. There's many other feelings that we battle with and struggle with. And so many times those those battles happen in the deepest recesses of our heart. And we, we neglect, we fail to bring those feelings out and allow God's word and God's truth to, to illuminate those and to point out errors in our way of thinking because our emotions extend from that which we've been thinking. We fail to do that. Here God is bringing it out into the open and saying we need to confront this. We need to deal with this. The confrontation of discouragement. We also see here the repetition of discouragement. You say repetition, what do you mean by that? Well, this This specific area of discouragement, which we'll look at in just a second, was the exact same discouragement that 16 years ago or 16 years prior to this passage were part of what shut the work down to begin with. I got it here on the screen, Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. This is going back 16 years, but this is what took place. As they laid the foundation stones of the temple, it says, but many of the priests and the Levites And chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. And it wasn't too much later after this took place 
that the work was halted and it was shut down and nothing was accomplished for the next 16 years. Here we are, almost two decades later, the same discouragement. Discouragement works that way. It doesn't have to reinvent itself. It doesn't have to rediscover itself. It doesn't have to repackage itself in order to kind of get us down and in order to to sidetrack us from the work of God. It's the same thing. It just comes back around in maybe a slightly different form, a different spin. In this case, it's the same thought. The same discouragement repeated from before. And now God's going to deal with it. He begins questioning his people in verse number three, who is left among you who saw this house in her first glory and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? We see the source of this discouragement. God exposes the source. He asks them a question. Who is left? Who is left among you? Who's still here who was here before? And we see our first problem or our first source of discouragement, and that is the problem that we often deal with, the problem of past experience. The problem of past experience. You see, this issue of discouragement was specifically the problem, as we read there in the book of Ezra, of the ancient men, the old people. Pick on the old people tonight. But it was those that had the most human experience. Now, the Bible points out, the book of Proverbs points out, the value of human experience, the wisdom that can come from years of of experience, of following the Lord, of pursuing after Him. There, there, There is some value, there is some wisdom, but there's also a danger. And the danger was that these Older men, these ancient men, those who, that had the, the longest human experience would, would interpret what, is, what God is doing now through the lens of what God had done and what they had seen in the past. And they tried to interpret what God was doing in the present based upon what had happened in the past and their perspective. And that's important as well, their perspective of what happened in the past. And sometimes our past experience, what we think of, how good it used to be in the past, which a lot of times isn't necessarily the reality of what it was, but we have those rose-tinted glasses viewpoint of the past and oh, how wonderful it was in the past. We've forgotten of the price. We've forgotten the battles. We've forgotten the difficulties. And we only see, oh, it was so good way back when. And our human experience taints what God is doing in the present and we then diminish what God is doing because it doesn't quite match what we think happened in the past. There's a problem of past experience that can cause and be the source of our discouragement. On top of this, there's also a problem of perspective. He says, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Did you see the three different times? How do you, how do you see it? Who saw it? Is it not in your eyes? There's a perspective here that God is pointing out. And the perspective is not a right perspective. It's a human perspective. It's a physical perspective. 
You see, these men, these older men, this, this group of those that remembered the temple of Solomon 70 years prior, they remember perhaps as a young man being able to go to the temple, perhaps with their, with their parents going up to, to worship the Lord, they saw the, the glory and the splendor of the temple. They had that experience. And, and so now they viewed their work in ministry today through the eyes of their past experience and through the eyes of man Instead of the eyes of God, they were seeing the past, their perspective on the past affected their perspective on the present. And sometimes we have to kind of question ourselves and poke some holes in our past perspective and how we're viewing things. Was the temple 70 years prior, was it a magnificent sight, physically speaking? Of course it was. There's some estimation that just within the Holy of Holies in that temple, there was $4 billion worth of gold just in that one place. And of course, with today's economy, it's probably like $6 billion. It just keeps going up. So it was a grand physical site. He mentions that. Who is there among you that saw this house in her first glory? You saw how great it was. It was a grand physical site. But can we poke a hole in that for just a second? Why didn't that temple exist? Because God had destroyed it. The physical condition of the people of Judah was so bad. Their spiritual condition, I should say, the spiritual condition in their hearts was so bad that God said, enough. You're, you're going into captivity and I'm going to use the Babylonians to completely destroy the wonders of this temple. So physically speaking, the, the Solomon's temple was great, was wonderful, was magnificent. But what about the spiritual condition of Judah? They had forgotten about that. They had missed that one piece like we do many times. They viewed the blessings of the past as a boundary or a limitation for God's blessing in the future. God had blessed physically in the past. This new temple was never going to be the old one. It was never going to match the, 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 the splendor, the magnificence of the old one. That's not what God had intended. So God had blessed physically in the past, but now God wanted to bless spiritually See, they didn't, they didn't see that. Their perspective was physical, and God's perspective was spiritual. This is what happens with discouragement, because it, it, it comes upon us, it takes place, because our, we get our perspective on the physical instead of the spiritual, and it doesn't take very long when our, our eyesight is out of whack, and all of a sudden now discouragement is right there. It was a problem of perspective. It was also a problem, and this kind of goes together, a problem of parallels. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes, and notice these two words, in comparison of it? What were they doing? They were going back in their mind's eye and remembering the temple of the past. The grand and glorious 
temple that they had the privilege of seeing with their own physical eyes many, many decades ago. They took that image in their mind, whether it was a completely accurate image, we might argue, but that image that was in their mind, and then they looked at the work that they were doing now. And they held the two things up together and they compared the one versus the other. They drew a comparison between themselves and their work today and the work of others in the past. Not that they were the ones who were physically responsible for that temple. But they saw the results of those labors and they compared that to the results of their labors in the present and they saw a huge disparity. This is what we've been able to accomplish for God. These are the results today. And look at the results of the past. They don't even compare. They don't even measure up. And in that, they fell to what we're warned about in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Where Paul says, we dare not. It's not just you shouldn't do this, but you dare not do this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. This comparison game of here, is the, here are the fruits of my labor and here are the fruits of, of other people's labors and I, I should be gleaning, I should be uh, reaping as much fruit as, as they're reaping and I'm not, so therefore it must be this big problem. We're, compare, we're comparing ourselves amongst ourselves and therefore we are not wise. In reality, they had a different task than that of Solomon. God had blessed Solomon with probably more wealth than any human being had ever experienced. And God's plan for Solomon, God's plan for that temple, was to reflect and, and, and really give an image of, of, of how great he was and how much riches and splendor and magnificence were characteristic of God himself. That was the task of Solomon, to make a place that would reflect God's glory. The task here today in the book of Haggai, you know, in that time period, was to prepare a place for people to worship God. To return back to the true worship of God. Their task in one way was the same, but in another way was completely different. And, and, and God had all of that in his mind. God knew what he was doing. But the point was this, they had a different task than Solomon had. But because they fell to this problem of parallels, comparing themselves amongst themselves, it brought, up, it brought on some discouragement. There's one more problem that was the source of their discouragement, and it's the problem of appreciation. It's that last phrase there in verse number three. Is it not? Is this place, is this project that you're working on now is the temple that you're building now in your eyes, in comparison of it, as nothing? So the reality was they viewed what they were doing, they, they viewed the results of what they were doing as nothing. How did God view what they were doing? 
We'll go back a couple of weeks to the end of chapter number one. It was God who immediately saw what they were doing. And he says in chapter one and verse 13, this is God's message to the people that Haggai was to deliver. He says, I am with you, saith the Lord. And he stirred up the, the spirit of Zerubbabel and he stirred up the spirit of the people. And they came and did the work. God says, I'm with them. God let significance to that project and what was taking place. They looked at the project and what was taking place, and they didn't see that significance. There was a problem of appreciation. They saw it as nothing. If you're here in the book of Haggai, turn like two pages, two or three pages. Remember that Zechariah, the very next book, was written by a contemporary prophet of Haggai. They were co-laborers in ministry, two preachers. And you notice what God's message was through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 4. And look there in verse number 9. You'll see some familiar names. Verse 9, it says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. That's what the people were doing. That was the task at hand, to finish the work and the house of God. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And notice verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see a plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. You notice the question that God asked? He said, who are you that despise the day of small things. So here are these men. They were looking at the work that they were doing. They were looking at the results that were coming from the work they were doing. They viewed it as nothing. They viewed it as small. They esteemed it as not very important, not very significant. And the point is this. God had the very exact opposite view. And he calls them to task. You, you see what I'm doing because of your, what happened in the past, because of your past experience, because of your human perspective, because of your comparison, you're failing to appreciate what I am doing in the present. You despise it, which is a good word in the Old Testament. It means that when you look at it, you esteem it as zero. You set it as naught as the official de definition. That means you look at it, it's something of value, it's something of importance, and you give it the value of zero. And that's exactly what they were doing. God was doing something. God was using these people. They were being obedient to what God had, had told them to do. This was a time of rejoicing. This was a time of encouragement. And they were discouraged because they had a problem of appreciating what God was doing. And if we're not careful, we can do the very same thing. And the losers in that are ourselves. We become the ones who are discouraged because we're not rejoicing in what God is doing. They, they had their eyes on one thing. They were looking at that temple and they said, we can never do what they did. God wasn't asking you to do what they did. God's asking you to do what he wants you to do today. And when you do God's will today... No matter how much it might feel that that task is, task is insignificant, no matter how much it might feel that that task is small, 
God views obedience as something that is significant. And though it is perhaps a small thing, may we not be guilty of despising the day of small things. God comes to his people and says, I know about your discouragement. I'm here to shine some light on it. I know you're suffering privately behind closed doors. I know you're, you're struggling with this and it's time that we talk about it. Here's where it's coming from. But God obviously does not just leave them there. And this is one of the few places we can go to other places where, you know, where we see principles as far as what to do when we, we have the feelings of discouragement. In this case, this is God's prescription. God actually gives us a prescription for discouragement. It's the exact prescription that God gives to his people. He says, this is what you need to do. I like how verse 4 opens. He says, yet now. Yet now. Okay, so no matter how strong you think you are, no matter how spiritually capable you might view yourself to be, you're, you're going to face discouragement. It's, it's going to happen. And when you face it, I mean, God exposed it. Let it out. Bring it to the light of day, to the light of God's truth. And now the question can simply be stated, what now? Okay, you're discouraged. You're defeated. You're dispirited. Now what? And I like God just says, yet now. All right, you're discouraged. We dealt with that. It is what it is. It's on the table. We're shining the light of truth on it now. Now here's what I want you to do. In verse 4, he says two words. First part of the prescription these four steps that God's, God gives, step number one is simply be strong. Be strong, be strong, be strong. He repeats it three different times to all the different groups of the people. From Zerubbabel to Joshua to all the people of the land, be strong. If we stay in a state, if we stay in a place of discouragement, discouragement weakens our hands. Discouragement causes us to be weak. God desires for us to be strong. And he says to his people the same message that Moses gave to Joshua, the same message that David gave to Solomon. God's now giving this message to his people. He says, be strong. Be strong. It's the same message he gives to us as New Testament believers. There's multiple um, examples of this, but 2 Timothy 2.1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I like that because it points out, it's not just us just mustering up strength, but it is us being strong in the grace, in the help of God, we can be strong. It also tells me that if God has to tell us and command us to be strong, then we need to understand that it's our natural tendency to be weak. It's our natural tendency to take the shortcut. It's our natural tendency to choose the easy path. It's our natural tendency to default to the path of least resistance. That's what we do, humanly speaking, and, and God needs to tell us, hey, you're discouraged. I understand that. 
Yet now, be strong. Be strong. Discouragement weakens. My desire is to strengthen you. Discouragement says to you, you don't have what it takes. You don't have enough. And God says, I'll give you the strength that you need. I have enough. Be strong. Step number one, be strong. Step number two, verse number four. You could almost miss these couple of words. But he says, be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and what? Work. And work. See, this idea of be strong and, and work, they're, they're kind of tied together. They're linked together. Because we'll never experience God's strength by just sitting on the sidelines waiting for it. It's not how God works. He said, get in there, get busy, be strong. And as you be strong and work, I'll give you the strength that you need to get the task accomplished. In other words, what God is saying to his people is don't quit. Don't quit. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't make adjustments or we don't kind of take, take a step back and take stock of where we are and what's taking place. And uh, it doesn't mean uh, that we don't look for a more biblical way of doing things. But it does mean that we don't use the results or the lack of results as an excuse to quit. Because that was obviously the temptation. And this is what God is dealing with, right? When he says, be strong and work. Obviously, the temptation is to look back to the past and say, look at what they did. Look at what we did. We'll never do what they did. We'll never have enough to, 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 to compare to those things. So why don't we just quit and go home right now? Does that sound familiar? It does, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what they were doing when Haggai first started delivering God's message. They had looked at the work that God had wanted them to do. They looked at the task of obedience that God set before them and they said, you know what? It's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't have time. You know, I don't have the strength. I'm really busy right now and it'll be a whole lot easier just to set that to the side, forget about it and focus on me. On my house, building my house. God points that out in Haggai chapter 1. My house lies waste while you're, you're living in luxury. Everything's great at home, but you're neglecting me. That's a problem. See, the reason they did that was because the discouragement, the, the difficulties tell us, just give up, focus on yourself. It'll be a whole lot easier that way. And you know what? It is. It is a whole lot easier to not worry about you know, people's spiritual well-being. It is, it is easier not worrying about whether or not the, the lost have heard the gospel and whether or not you need to give it to them. It's a whole lot easier just to be happy and, 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 and earn money and make a good living and enjoy life, enjoy your family, enjoy just, just living. And it's easier. It is. It's not very fulfilling. But it is easier God says the exact opposite. You follow me and let me take care of your problems. 
Discouragement says it's easier just to, to give up and focus on yourself. God says, just follow me and let me take care of the rest. And that's what being a disciple is all about. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Don't quit. Don't quit. Number three, the third step, verse number five. Really, it starts with the end of verse four when he says, be strong and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. The third step in this process of overcoming discouragement is refusing fear. And you can refuse fear for this reason. You are not alone. What God is saying is, my people, now God had a special covenant relationship with these people. They're his people, the Jewish people. He promised in Exodus chapter 29, verse 45 and 46, he says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And God points their attention back to this promise. And he said, from the time you left Egypt, I made you a promise. I have never stopped keeping my promise. And I never will. Therefore, don't be afraid. Discouragement says you are all alone. There's no one else who's doing what you're doing. There's no one else who's feeling what you're feeling. There's no one else going through what you are going through. You are all alone. And God says, no, 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 with me, you are never alone. You're never alone. My spirit remaineth among you. Do you know, believers, we have the exact same promise today? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 30, we're told that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. If, if you desire to be obedient with, uh, to, to God, if you desire to be a profitable servant of the Lord, to give your life for the Lord, you can be assured tonight God's with you. His Spirit remains in you. So therefore, don't be afraid. You're not alone. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say to these things? And by the way, he had just listed a whole bunch of discouragements. A whole bunch of difficulties. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Refuse fear. And then he launches in verse number six into a prophecy that some have struggled with. And I, I want to I do due diligence and make sure that we properly uh, interpret what's before us. But I also want to be very careful not to miss the point. There's a point in the prophecy. And the point of the prophecy is this. It is step number four. And it is in our discouragement, in order to overcome that discouragement, we must look to the future promises of God. Look to the future promises of God. Notice what he says here. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. All nations and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And it goes on. But there's a lot of ink that's been spilled over this, over what is being spoken of here. And specifically, 
uh, around that phrase, I believe it's in verse number 7, the desire of all nations. What is that? There are some that say, well, the desire of all nations, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And though they don't realize they have the desire, he is the answer to all their desires. And I would definitely agree with that. And there's the others that say, well, no, 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 that's not the desire of nations. The desire of nations is what he talks about, the silver and the gold. That's what the nations are after, and God's going to provide that. So let me, let me sort of take those viewpoints and, and tie them all together. Specifically, not losing sight of the topic at hand, because this is what God is trying to say. Discouragement says, and the discouragement that these men were facing, it says to them, go back to the past. Remember the past. Live in the past. Because there's no hope for the future. We can never hope to build a temple like that one in the past. So therefore, let's live in the past. And God says, no, no, no. Don't remember the past. Instead, remember my promise. Remember my promise. And it's almost as if, if I could just give you a picture in your mind, it's almost as if God takes his people into the planetarium. Have you ever been to a planetarium before? It's that big domed screen, right? He takes his people, they've, they've got their, 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 their eyes and their mind focused on the here and now, focused on the task in front of them, and God says, all right, come on. I've got a little something to show you. Sit down right here. And of course, you sit in those big uh, uh, overgrown chairs and they kind of lean back. And now you have this vast expanse of a screen in front of you. And they take you on a tour of the solar system and how small and insignificant you seem. This is kind of what God is doing with his people. I sit, sit back here. I want you to watch what I'm doing and then I'm going to tie it into what you're doing, and it's going to knock your socks off. All right. So there's some different views of this passage. Some people, uh, they, they come to it and they say, well, the promise that's here is a promise of provision. That God is going to provide for this task that they are accomplishing. God is going to shake the heavens and shake the earth, and he had already done so by stirring up the spirit of, of Cyrus to build his house. And you remember it was this King Cyrus, the emperor over most of the known world at that time, that was offering his wealth, his silver, his gold to build this. And God was literally shaking the nations and providing the, the silver and the gold that was necessary in order to get this job done. God would furnish the house that would, would be built with silver and gold, the desire of the nations. And God would furnish the, his house with his glory. He would provide everything necessary to make this house glorious, perhaps not quite as glorious as it was before, but God was going to take care of making sure this house was glorious and God would bless his house with a piece of his presence. This is part of the promise. And there we are, you know, watching the, the planetarium. This is one piece of what God could be referring to with this promise. But quickly we're taken to another piece. And that is the promise of a redeemer. Because this temple, the house that they would finish, the house that they would uh, beautify and, and, and turn into the house of God, the temple of God, that house, though it would be remodeled and beautified by King Herod in the New Testament or New Testament times, it would still be the same house. It would remain until the coming of the desire of nations, that is Jesus Christ himself. 400 years in the future, God would shake the heavens and shake the earth by sending his only begotten son to be born of a virgin. The desire of nations would come and would fill this house with glory. 
God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ, would walk the halls of this house. He would be brought here as a baby, being given to the Lord. He would sit here as a boy in the midst of the doctors, both both asking and answering their questions. He would preach here. He would heal here. He would cleanse his house. He would claim it as my father's house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And whatever silver and gold would have been used to adorn this house and beautify his house, God would claim it as his own. It's mine. It's mine. And the glory of this house would be greater than, than, that, than the glory of Solomon's house because the very Prince of Peace himself would bless it with his physical presence. While he was in the, 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 in the motion of authoring the potential peace with God that we enjoy today as believers and saints of God. Amen. And God quickly shifts to perspective number three. And that is the promise of a king. See, we, view the, we in our day today view the first two promises as already being accomplished in the past, but I think there's a promise for us in the future. Because one day in the future, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land during a period of time that we know as the tribulation. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, specifically quotes Haggai 2 in verse 7, and makes this connection. This house, which if you think about it, this is kind of a neat thing. Today, all that's left of this house that they built is the foundation stones. Believe it or not, they're still there. Now, they're under a couple layers of some stones that Herod has added since this day. But these stones are still there. So even though all that is left are the foundation stones and the rest has been destroyed, is currently being occupied by idolaters, God promises that one day it will be rebuilt. And that rebuilt house is described for us in the book of Ezekiel. God takes Ezekiel through this glorious place. And all the silver and all the gold that will be there will belong to God. God will identify with. You can only imagine what it will be like. Jesus will enter that house as the promised king, through the eastern gate, and he will rule and reign from that place, his millennial kingdom, the kingdom of ultimate peace, right there from that place. Amen. Micah describes it in Micah chapter 4. I'll just read this to you. It says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The prince of peace rules his kingdom. And we just went on a ride through the expanse, the solar system of God's plan. And God says all of it connects back with you to what you're doing right now. See, they didn't didn't see that. 
They looked at their labors and they said, these are so very little, so very small. God didn't see it that way. And in our discouragement, when we look at our labors and we say, I I don't see the results. I I don't see the the grandness that I thought I was going to see. I don't see uh, the blessing that was going to take place because I decided to obey God. And what you don't see is the fact that God is up to something bigger than what you could have ever imagined. God's up to something bigger than you. God was up to something bigger than them. And his message to them was, just keep laboring because you have no idea what I'm getting ready to do. You have no idea that the the little that you think you are accomplishing for the kingdom of God, what I'm going to do with that. You have no idea. Talk about a cure for our discouragement. When we get feeling down and we're just not seeing it, what is this all about? Well, this is about one thing. And this is one thing only. It's about obeying God. Obeying God. What What was God's task for Solomon? Build him a house? The grandest house that could possibly ever be built? Maybe the greatest building, probably the greatest building that was ever constructed in the the history of mankind. What was God's task for his people? He'll restore worship to me. Was Solomon successful in God's plan? I I think he was. Were these folks here successful in God's plan? We just saw a tour. Absolutely they were. Why were they both successful? They accomplished different things. They both were obedient to God. That's what it's all about. Of course, how could we not forget tonight the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 58? You probably have it memorized. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why can we do that and not succumb to discouragement? Why can we do that and not just throw our hands up and quit because things are not working out like we thought they were going to work out? Here's why. You know. You know that your labor is not in vain. Can I say that again? If you are being obedient to God, if you are doing what God has asked you to do, and you're doing it to the best of of your ability, just like the people were in the book of Haggai, they weren't being obedient, they got challenged on it, now they were being obedient, and because they were being obedient, their labor was not in vain. No matter how small it seemed in comparison to the labors of others, their labor was not in vain. If you are being obedient to God and, 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 and following God's will for your life and pursuing after Him to the best of your ability, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's God's promise to you. That's what God says. And there are times that we have to allow God to confront our discouragement, to shine some light on it, to do like he did with Elijah. You remember that? Or two different times God says, um, Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, you know, I'm, 
I'm the only one left serving you, God. I mean, can't you see that? Can't you see all that I've suffered? And of course, then God takes him through and he hears the, the whirlwind and the fire and all of that. And then God says to him again, what doest thou here, Elijah? What was God doing? He's confronting his discouragement. I know why you're here. And uh, we need to deal with this. Let God bring your discouragement out into the light of day. And allow him to take your perspective off of what you deem to be little. The day of small things. Instead, look to him with an eye of faith. And the eye of faith says this. I don't know what God is up to. One day, I'll know that. Our sister Christine, this morning, the, the, today, this evening, she knows all of that. She can see all of that. Her faith has become sight. I don't know what God is doing, but I know God asked me to do this, and so I'm going to do it until he says not to do it anymore. God has a specific will. He's got a specific plan for you, an area of service, an area of ministry, something that he wants you to do. And sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes you don't see the results that you think you ought to see. Sometimes it, it doesn't feel very uh, you know, fulfilling. You don't feel appreciated. It feels very small. But it's at that point, we allow God to confront our discouragement, and then we say, you know what? Is this what you want me to do? Yes. Then I'm going to continue doing it. I'll leave the results with you. Because you said that my labor is not. That means it's never. In vain. In the Lord. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm sure it's a whole lot bigger than what I think it is and what I can see with my own eyes. God called his people to consider their discouragement because he wanted them to get their eyes back on him and being obedient to what he says and let the results in his hands. With our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, Kristen's going to come and just play a verse of invitation at the piano. If, if God is spoken to your heart. I, didn't, I hope I didn't come across tonight as in any way demeaning the struggle of discouragement. I'd, I've been there more often than I care to admit. Perhaps there's some discouragement tonight that you're facing that you need to bring out into the light of God's truth. Ask God to, to help you to get your perspective back on I'm just going to do what God has called me to do in anticipation of one day when my race is run, I'm going to be able to see all that God was doing. And I'll worship Him because of it. Give that discouragement to the Lord. Spend some time in prayer and we'll close in prayer in just a moment.